0: Hi, this is Mitch Landrew, and I'm the founder and president of E Pluribus Unum. Welcome to Episode 2 of Divided by Design, a podcast series on understanding systemic racism and advancing racial equity. E Pluribus Unum is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization whose mission is to build a more just, equitable, and inclusive South, uprooting the barriers that have long divided the region by race and class. Race is America's most traumatic issue, one that we have not faced nor nearly worked through. Centuries old wounds are still raw because they have never healed correctly in the first place. Far too many black Americans remain trapped in a vicious cycle of anger, of fear and hopelessness. And they will remain so until more white Americans come to grips with the country's past and seek to repair what has been broken. Our nation will remain stuck until we redesign the systems that have kept us divided for generations. We're talking to advocates, historians, and experts to help break down the issues of systemic racism that have crippled this country since its founding and to help us envision a brighter future for us all. On this episode, our focus is on the theme of economic opportunity. While the United States economy has experienced both amazing highs and catastrophic lows since the end of World War II, there is one economic statistic that has remained eerily constant over the course of this incredible period of growth, which has seen America become a world superpower. That statistic is 10 to 1. 10 to 1 represents the economic dominance that white families hold over black families in the land of the free. Dr. Andre Perry, a fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Programs at Brookings Institute, had this to share about the history and the current state of the racial wealth gap and disparity in America.
1: I mean, there, there's been this long-standing white supremacist myth that states that the conditions of black cities and neighborhoods are a direct result of the people in them. But we know that there's been policies and practices that have throttled black wealth creation and community development. And it, it, it has been the, that intentional devaluation of black lives that has really created the kind of wealth disparities that exist today. You've, um, you, you probably know, many people know, that the wealth disparity, the black-white um, 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 wealth gap is about 170,000 for white um, um, families to, to about 17,000 for black families.
0: Danielle Solomon, who serves as Vice President of Race and Ethnicity Policy at the Center for American Progress, has done extensive work on the racial wealth gap and its roots. The wealth
2: gap didn't just show up here. It's all intentional and designed this way. And the system is actually working exactly the way that it was intended to. It is not meant to allow Black people to build wealth. And you see that in the data. So when you look at the data, even when Black people are doing everything right, right, they're following the rules, they buy a home, they go to college, they get married, they do all the things, they still are not able to produce wealth at the same rate as their white counterparts. Today, a typical white family who's non-college educated, a non-college educated white household likely has more wealth than a college educated black household. That's not, that right there shows you that is not the result of like poor choices. That, that is the result of systems and how systems are uh, putting out different outputs for people of color, particularly black people. And I think if we want to talk about how to change uh, or build wealth for black people, we actually need to talk about how we change the system. So it allows black people to build wealth. And so while white Americans may think they don't have a lot of wealth, they are more likely to have assets that provide them with wealth. So they're more likely to have a home. They are more likely, and, and by having a home, I mean about 41 to 42% of African Americans own a home compared to 73% of white Americans. They are less likely to uh, play in the stock market Um, as white Americans, they also are more likely when they take on debt, their debt is more expensive, right? So even when they are able to get a credit card or able to get a loan, that debt that they take on is much more expensive than their white counterparts.
0: The CEO of Hope Credit Union, Bill Bynum, points out how studies show that there are even high income disparities when it comes to black families with children.
3: And we talked earlier about the wealth gap. So you have a 10 to 1 wealth gap, black households, white households. Duke and Northwestern researchers recently documented a 100 to 1 gap when it's black families with children compared to white families with children. 100 to 1 wealth gap is not going to be overcome with a few announcements with moving the chairs around on the deck. It takes... Serious, transformative levels of investment.
0: Angela Glover-Blackwell, who has been active in social justice for over 40 years and currently serves as the founder-in-residence at PolicyLink, wonders why change has been so hard to bring about.
4: As we reflect on the nation's history, it's clear that the racial disparities and inequities that exist in the economic system are not well understood And yet they persist and they persist in the wealthiest nation in the world. And it doesn't matter whether we're in good times or bad times in terms of the economy of the United States. We continue to see this lagging gap. Some say that the wealth gap is even growing.
0: Danielle Solomon explains the roots of racial inequality in America and how this practice began more than 400 years ago.
2: Again, wealth does beget wealth and white Americans have had a huge start in building that wealth and they built it on the backs of Native American people by taking their land and, t- and taking their lives, as well as on the backs of black people through chattel slavery. Slavery is the first institutional economic system that we had in America. Upwards of $14 trillion were made of free labor off of black people in America. That wealth is... Um, was inherited by white Americans across the country. That is an amount of wealth that you cannot just replace with one individual policy or one check. It, it, it's all about a complete structural reform. I think it's also important to, when we're talking about the racial wealth gap, to understand that public policy has made this wealth gap further entrenched in what we see today, right? So it's not just about uh, New Deal policies like redlining, it's also about the GI Bill. It's also about the highway interstate laws. It's also about occupational segregation, what jobs are available to Black people. Um, The jobs that Black people hold today, they are overrepresented in service sector jobs. There's a reason why Black people are overrepresented in those service sector jobs. They're overrepresented because those were the jobs that were available to them, during Jim Crow, and they were the jobs that they held as slaves.
0: Following the Civil War, the promise of 40 acres and a mule was made to recently freed slaves, many of whom had joined the Union Army to help defeat the Confederacy. But this too was a promise not delivered. Nathaniel Smith, the founder and chief equity officer at the Partnership for Southern Equity, offered his perspective on the 40 acres promise.
5: You know, this question about 40 acres and a mule, especially as a person from the South, is a very near and dear question. Um, and when people ask me that question, I say one of the main issues that stopped us from having an opportunity to get 40 acres and a mule is that we are the mule, right? We are the mule for this nation. We, we have been the mule, the economic mule that has driven this economy. And so they are not going to give mule, a mule to a mule. You know, it's not like black people don't aren't successful at business. It's just that when we become successful, people come and, and, and try to kill us and, and stop us from being economically independent. You know, so, you know, violence has been used as an economic development tool for white people in America. You know, aggression um, and, and violence. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge the trauma right? That because of all of those occurrences, the trauma that black people have kept inside of them around this history of violence as it relates to entrepreneurship.
0: Angela Glover-Blackwell provides more context on the motivation for the great migration out of the South. I mentioned again the
4: great migration. People often talk about it in terms of moving to the North and the West Seeking opportunity, but people were also leaving brutality. It was a push and a pull. People were taking the initiative after having tried to really make something in the South after slavery was ended and reaching experiencing so much violence and then moving to places where they thought there would be opportunity and experience both physical violence and many other kinds of violence as well.
0: Following the red summer of 1919, when more than 40 independent black communities were burned to the ground, including Tulsa's Black Wall Street, Omaha, Nebraska, and Elaine, Arkansas, very little was done in future years by the U.S. government to support black economic growth. Listen to Dr. Drew Faust, the President Emeritus, and the Arthur Kingsley Porter University professor at Harvard University speak on the long-term ramifications on FDR's New Deal
4: often stunning to people to understand, is how the New Deal was structured in such a powerfully pro-white way that um, in order to keep the Southern senators on board with the Democratic Party, Franklin Roosevelt made all these appalling compromises and didn't include, for example, domestic labor or agricultural labor in many of the New Deal benefits. Or then we look after World War II and we see how housing benefits were made available or not available based on
0: race. Dr. Eddie Glaude, Department Chair of African-American Studies at Princeton, dissects the wealth gap's roots in history.
5: The point to the New Deal is so important because this is the period in which we begin to see the emergence of the vaunted American middle class, Mm -hmm. right? So the wealth gap that we're experiencing today isn't just simply, isn't the result of the laziness of Black people. Right, that they lacked fortitude yes, yeah. that it's a policy decision 12 years after the passage of the uh, Fair Housing Act of 1968 we elect Ronald Reagan who is charged to dismantle it all what is that? that's a reassertion of the belief that whiteness ought to accord you a certain kind of value a certain kind of benefit
0: Danielle Solomon describes the policies that have kept this situation repeating over and over again
2: that's a huge piece of how Americans build wealth in this country. And banks, real estate agents, uh, the real estate industry, uh, builders have all made money, right, off of stripping wealth out of Black communities. We saw it with the building of Central Park in New York, Olympic Park in Atlanta, uh, the violence uh, that was um, besieged on Tulsa. Um, This Interstate Highway Act, so these were laws, and I really want to just pinpoint that policy and laws allowed this to happen in Black communities, the stripping of wealth. People knew this was happening and allowed it to happen and perpetuate. Um, Redlining is probably the most famous. Most people understand what that is, but I did actually write down two facts I wanted to share with the audience. So between 1934 and 1962, $120 billion in FHA loans went out to families. 2% of that money went to non-white families. Only 2%. Uh, 74% of the areas that were deemed hazardous or in redlined areas in the 30s remain today low to moderate income, and 60% are predominantly made up of communities of color. So policy and what we do at the state, local, and federal level, as well as what companies are doing around stripping wealth not only had an impact then, but it has an impact today. And so I think we need to move beyond solidarity statements and press releases and actually sit down and figure out what structural policy needs to change because we have centuries of harm that need to be reckoned
0: with. In the face of more than 400 years of adversity, Black Americans have always had leaders who've stepped up to move us forward on race. From Frederick Douglass to the more than 100 black U.S. House and Senate members, civil rights activists Fannie Lou Hamer, Dr. Martin Luther King, and innumerable others have led the way. Here's Nathaniel Smith on the leaders of the resistance movement
5: resistance, in my opinion, is American as apple pie. And if, if, if we're going to have a serious conversation about economic development and talk about the way that white supremacy has tried to work to devalue us and, and exploit us, we also have to make sure that people understand that people just didn't allow that to happen, that there was a 24-7, 365 proposition of resistance that was always on the table. And we constantly did that throughout this process and throughout this, the work of
0: creating a more perfect As we reflect on a 2020 that has included a global health crisis, a racial reckoning against police brutality, and a major economic fallout from the COVID virus, we look again at the 10 to 1 disparity in economic inequality between blacks and whites in America and ask ourselves the following questions. How have more than 400 years of racial and gender inequality influenced the stagnation of growth in economic equity that we see among people of color today? What can be done to bridge both the racial and gender gaps that so divide America? Bill Bynum speaks about the damage caused by decades of economic policies designed to exclude millions of Americans based upon race.
3: Atlantic um Uh, generated a map of the United States prior to the onset of the Civil War, and it showed where slaveholding was concentrated the greatest. But if you overlay that map with a map today of where you have places that have had poverty more than 20% for not three decades in a row, which is the federal definition of persistent poverty, but a half a century, they're pretty much the same areas. And if you look at where you have the worst education outcomes, uh, home ownership. Um, uh, conditions, fewest grocery stores that sell healthy produce, the highest numbers of payday lenders and financial predators, and the fewest number of bank branches, they're the same um, by and large. And so this is deep entrenched, rooted discrimination, uh, extraction of wealth and opportunity from uh, uh, a region that is predominantly people of color, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana have the highest percentages of black population in the country. And so that's not a coincidence that those conditions exist in a region that is predominantly black. It's not just black folk. We're in the poorest part of the country. So we have a lot of poor black, white folk. We have an increasingly large uh, Latino population. We have uh, native tribal lands in our region and they're in the same boat. Institutions that determine where resources go and don't go, uh, don't have diversity then that's going to permeate throughout the culture of these organizations. If people in the C-suites are not diverse, and if you look at the major banks in the company, they are woefully white male, uh, certainly not close to what representative of the population as a whole. And you can see the impact of that in as we navigate this triple crisis, this health crisis, economic crisis, and a racial justice. Uh, crisis and the programs that were put in place, the Paycheck Protection Program, the initial rollout was woefully inadequate. And depending on a financial system that has a terrible record of redlining, of pushing back against regulation that um, supports fair lending, Um, and, and at a time when we see so many things that we thought were settled doctrine, the Community Reinvestment Act I mentioned, fair lending, disparate impact, um, simply reporting who you lend to and don't lend to, um, is those are under siege. um, And we need the banking sector to step up and to not only act in a way that is responsible and inclusive, but to advocate for policies that broaden inclusion and opportunity.
0: Maria Colacaccio is the CEO of HR analytics company, Sindio and she had this to say about gender inequity in today's workforce
6: more legislation that requires accountability specifically for companies we have 44 state laws right now around pay equity equal pay we have the federal equal pay protection act we have the lily ledbetter act and so you would think that these would require accountability and and compliance from companies and the fact is sometimes they do but the truth is With that legislation, the ones I just mentioned, all the onus is still on the plaintiff, which means if you're a person in a company, you have to go gather the research and the comparative data to show and prove that you're underpaid before you can even bring a claim to the EEOC. So how can we look at some countries like Australia or the UK or Sweden that are actually going further to say, if you're a company with 100 employees or more, you need to proactively do some reporting and have accountability on an annual basis to show us that you are paying fairly, that you don't have disparities. In addition to the heightened pressure, black women who are mothers and senior leaders are experiencing additional factors because they're dealing with emotional fatigue regarding all of the things that are happening in the macro environment, starting most recently with the murder of George Floyd, but obviously going on well before that. We have the tools at our fingertips. So now the question is, will we work together to dismantle some of the systemic issues that are causing companies to be remiss or potentially scared to address the issues within their own company. So I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a legal risk element to, to pay equity, obviously, which is why a lot of companies go to a law firm and they look at it underprivileged because they're afraid, they're scared of what they will find. And they're scared of lawsuits. They're afraid of the multi-million dollar remediation that they might encounter. But what we're finding is quite the opposite. Employees are so embracing of employers who, with transparency, step up and commit to accountability and fairness, that typically the lawsuits that occur when a company is proactive about addressing systemic racism around pay in their company are are almost zero. So I think we've really got to empower and encourage leaders to take the risk to look under the hood and use technology to find problems and fix them, and understand that if they do that proactively with the right intent and communication, they will be rewarded.
0: Garnicia Azadiaro, who leads the Greenwood Initiative at Bloomberg Philanthropy, feels that increased communication is the key to improve the racial disparity gap.
7: So when I think about action, I think about what we need to do to get to a better understanding and the first is we have to have more conversations about race and the history of this country. I think this moment has created um, an environment where now we are a little bit more willing to have those conversations. But the reality is many of us um, don't have the, the, the language or the openings that we are or not even pushing for them to actually reckon with um, what has happened in this country and how economic the economic system was built. You know, the the second thing is we also have to acknowledge and and not have it be a sidebar that certain groups are operating every day within systems that devalue their humanity and anything they produce. You know, the data that we're looking at shows that if if four key racial gaps for Black people um, were closed 20 years ago we would have added 16 trillion to the U.S. economy. Those gaps in wages, education, housing and investment. You think about today, if those gaps were closed, we would be adding 5 trillion to overall U.S. GDP. But it also is just that that grand number of that black, the black community only holds 1% of wealth in the country. If we think about that in itself, you know, it is, you know, it, it's a huge problem that's interconnected. And so, as we start moving towards action and solutions, we have to be thinking about the interconnectivity again across sectors and across issues to really um, create some change.
0: Bill Bynum shared his outlook on what is needed. For real change in bridging the economic disparity gap in America.
3: Yeah, we cannot thrive as a nation if we leave the majority of an increasingly black and brown population without the tools to um, support their families, to contribute to the economy. I don't think it matters which side of the political alley you're on. It's in our collective interest to make sure that we close these gaps.
0: Nathaniel Smith explains how valuing people of all colors would truly enhance our economy.
5: We have to begin the process of thinking through how can we begin to create a transformative economy where all people are looked at as an asset. If a huge corporation just hired, you know, a black company to provide paper clips and paper products, I mean, th- those are millions and millions of dollars that could be utilized to employ new um, employees of color as well as support businesses.
0: And now we'll hear from a black female from Montgomery, Alabama explaining how poor people get trapped in many ways by perceptions created by others. So
3: there's really a disdain for uh, people who are impoverished, uh, and it seems as though people here live in a bubble and not thinking about greater issues of this country with Inequity and, and, uh, and uh, class differences. And, and, so, and, and how poverty is such um, a huge, huge issue that affects so many people across race, mm-hmm. across spectrum.
0: Dr. Andre Perry runs the numbers on the opportunity to value black communities for what they're really worth.
1: A lot of people know me for my housing work and and what I found that after you control for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics, homes in black neighborhoods are undervalued by 23 percent, about 48,000 per home accumulatively. That's about 156 billion in lost equity. That 156 billion is the same amount of what equates to about more than four million um, businesses based on the average amount blacks use to start up um, companies.
0: Dr. Perry also emphasizes the importance of demonstrations to economic change for people of color.
1: We need to keep the protests going um, up until the the, the, uh, changes in housing policy, education
0: policy, um, um, building more transparency for business. Nathaniel Smith is concerned that the power of the protests would be diluted if we see this moment as merely about image rather than an opportunity for real change.
5: In order for us to move forward, and I would say that it's important for us to not allow corporations to, to, to use this as a marketing moment and not a meaning moment, right? We have to begin to be sophisticated enough and understand that we cannot allow this to become about marketing.
0: Dr. Perry explains that the missing ingredient for the economic advancement of people of color is simply access to capital.
1: We need to learn how to budget better. We need, that's nonsense. We know how to establish businesses. What is missing is investment. That's what's missing. It's not about we don't know anything. Again, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode on Economic Opportunity. History tells us that people of color haven't had the same opportunities as whites in this country. In fact, the system was built to keep people of color from reaching their full potential. At the heart of the insights on this episode, the lesson remains. By leveling the playing field for people of color, we help ourselves, and we help our society and our nation as a whole. Beyond the moral imperative, that's the real value in racial equity. We will be better and stronger as a country all of us. On the next episode, we look deeper at the topic of criminal justice on the Divided by Design podcast series presented by E Pluribus Unum. I'm Mitch Landrew. Thanks so much for listening. For more information on this podcast series or how to get involved in our efforts to advance racial equity in the South, go to www.unumfund.org follow at Unum Fund on social media. Drop us an email at podcast at unumfund.org.